Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have a fantastic show for you this evening. Army Blackhawk helicopter pilots Christopher Reeves and Cole Hamilton are with us, and we're going to learn all about the Blackhawk, their experience with the Wisconsin Army Air National Guard, and it is uh, Army National Guard, and it is uh, just absolutely fascinating stuff. Cannot wait for you to meet Chris and Cole. Before we get started, a few things. We are at the very end right now of this period of social flights. Fly to win challenge. We're giving away a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset on October 1st. And all you need to do is get the social flight mobile app for Apple or Android devices and just check in, in the at any airport or event in the fly to win challenge and you're entered in to win that Zulu 3 headset. If you go to many airports, you check in, you compete on our leaderboard, then you get extra entries into that drawing and a greater chance to win. We gave away in our last period an Aspen E5 electronic flight instrument. We're giving away this Lightspeed Zulu 3 now. We just keep having prizes in fly to win and we're here to support general aviation. And regardless of participating in that, the Social Flight app and socialflight.com have tens of thousands of aviation events and destinations, so many places to fly. And so please go check it out so that you can get out there, do more flying, and participate more in general aviation. That is what we are all about. Tonight's broadcast is brought to us by U Avionics and the amazing AV30, their AV20, their Tailbeacon X, Skybeacon, so many other products. I'll tell you, um, we absolutely love it. Those products are going into that Mustang that's behind me, getting built here. If you haven't seen those videos, um, we're putting it into Bonanza as well. There's, they're just fantastic. And so be sure to go check that out as well. And if you talk to them, thank them, of course, for supporting Social Flight because it makes it all possible for all of you and all of us in general aviation. Now on to tonight's program. Chief Warrant Officer Christopher Reeves and Cole, Captain Cole Hamilton work together in the Wisconsin Army National Guard, flying the amazing UH-60M Black Hawk helicopter. I met them at Air Venture earlier this year following their amazing demonstration air show of the battlefield capabilities of the Black Hawk, and I knew instantly that I had to share their stories here on Social Flight Live. Their paths to the cockpit of the Black Hawk are each unique. Uh, Chris is a fixed-wing commercial pilot turned Army helicopter pilot, while Cole's path has been through Army aviation since the beginning of college. Between the two of them, they are a wealth of knowledge about Black Hawk and the unique experience of commanding one of the most prolific aircraft in the Army today. I'm going to bring them each on the line now, so let me uh, do that. And... Please help me welcome to Social Flight Live, Chief Warrant Officer Christopher Reeves and Captain Cole Hamilton. How are you guys doing tonight? Good. Good evening, Jeff. Doing well. Um, first of all, I want to say thank you for coming on the show and thank you for everything you do for our country and uh, your service. 
And of course, it was absolutely uh, wonderful to bump into you when I was there with Jake and Ben walking the grounds after the air show uh, and, and get to meet the people who are actually flying in it and did that amazing demonstration. Well, thank you for your support, Jeff. And uh, I'll be honest, I think I recognized your songs before I recognized you. So uh, <laughs> pleasure I, I stopped you. That's not a surprise. They 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 have a bigger a bigger fan group. <laughs> so um, I want to start off with a little bit. Uh, I mentioned the the background, uh, and each of you have a very unique path that that brought you to where you are today and with the Black Hawk. So uh, Chris, I'd like to start with you. Tell me a little bit about your background, how you came to aviation, and found your way into that cockpit. Sure. Um, I'm not really sure how it started, you know, traveling commercially as a young kid, um, you know, watching big machinery move around and the biggest machine that you can possibly move around is an airplane. So I think there's a spark there. Uh, my parents saw that as a teenager and they gave me an introductory flight when I was 15. And that was the biggest mistake of their life because they got me hooked. And um, uh, I learned to fly in high school. I, I got my pilot certificate in Canada, so a license um, at about the same time I could drive. Uh, so I started flying, and I, I knew right away in, I think, 10th uh, grade there that I was going to be uh, a pilot one way, shape, or form. So from there, literally, it took off. That That's awesome. And and how, what transitioned you from, tell me a little bit about your civilian flying and how you found, how you moved from civilian flying then into uh, into helicopters and, and with the Army? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I learned to fly and got my commercial uh, certificate uh, in September of 2001. I started looking for a job and there wasn't a whole lot of them out there. Uh, so I bounced around, I think, three different jobs uh, through a couple of years after that. And I thought, oh, this will be a tough road ahead of me. Um, I learned to fly instead of getting a college education up in Canada. And my parents uh, are very uh, good, good, great folks, but just not enough money in that bank account to send me both to college and to flight school. So uh, I decided in order to facilitate that, I'd join the military because they have a really good uh, education and robust uh, programs for that. So I joined the Marine Corps uh, by virtue of my mom being American. So I, I'm still a citizen at the time. Uh, so it was an easy, uh, well, paperwork wise, it was easy to uh, go cross the border, go to the recruiter and say, hey, send me to boot camp. Uh, so I spent five years enlisted. Um, all the while, I still had that yearning uh, desire inside me to be in the uh, the flight deck uh, of those aircraft that I supported from from the ground. And I thought one day I'm going to be in one of those aircraft. Uh, so I got off of active duty at the same time I was finishing my my college degree um, and transitioned into flying in Alaska for about a year, and then came to Milwaukee, Wisconsin to fly freight night cargo. And at the same time, this was about two years, two two and a half years after leaving active duty. And I thought, well, I think there's this thing called the reserve or the, the guard. Let's just see what, what goes with this. So I originally talked to a recruiter saying, well, maybe infantry officer or artillery officer might be a thing. And he asked a little bit about my background. And I, well, I was a commercial pilot at the time. And he says, well, you ever thought about flying helicopters for the Army National Guard? I said, well, yes, but I didn't know I was qualified for that. So he gave the litany of requirements, and I thought, yep, my, that check, yep, that check, that check. And I thought, well, let's just see how far I can take this before they say no. And uh, about you know, about a year into that process, through all the interviews and batteries of tests, they said, yeah, here's some orders. You're going to flight school at Fort Rucker, Alabama. So um, 
I was a, a regional airline pilot at the time when I got those orders. So I had to put those on the regional airline flying. And then I went off to flight school for just almost two years learning to fly uh, the TH-67 and then onto the UH-60 Blackhawk. Wow. Now, do I understand correctly that you got your commercial certificate just before 9-11? Yes, the Friday before, my the instructor, the um, the Canadian version of the pilot examiner said, "All right, I deem you worthy of flying a multi-engine instrument aircraft in the Canadian airspace." I thought, awesome. So I parked, I uh, packed up. I think it was a 1983 Chevy Cavalier, mid-80s Cavalier, and I went to the end of the road on September 10th, trying to find a, a knock on any pilot and say, "Hey, give me a job. I have 250 hours. I think I can handle Beach 1900." And they said, well, I don't know about that. And then the next morning, um, I saw quite a number of international air carriers at Edmonton International that don't normally fly in there. And I thought, that's odd. But given at the time, um, there was no satellite radio. So I was listening to CDs. I had no idea what was going on. So uh, I learned of the, uh, the tragic events of 9-11 about mid-afternoon uh, as I got into uh, the larger metropolitan areas of, of northern Canada. So it's a tough road to uh, to try to break into in, in Canada. So decided to take a, uh, a leap of faith and join the uh, the military, uh, and it's been extremely rewarding since doing that. Uh, I, my position is, is skyrocketed as compared to my uh, my peers uh, in Canada. So I'm, I'm extremely fortunate for the opportunities uh, given to me. Wow, that's awesome. Now, Cole, you had a a, a different path, one that was. Uh more directed towards uh, the Army from the very beginning. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in high school, we did a speech class, and we had to interview somebody for a profession we wanted. And I was like, well, I think being a pilot would sound pretty cool. So one of my best friends, her father, flew for the Air Force, uh, flew KC-135. So what was supposed to be a 45-minute interview turned into a four-hour-long interview, um, just everything about military aviation. And you know, as a senior in high school, it's like, yep, that's exactly what I want to do. Um, and I'm going to go to college for this and I'm going to go straight into the military uh, flying for them. So that's what I did. I went to the University of Dubuque and studied aviation management uh, and flight operations and got my private and my instrument uh, through the school. Uh, initially, I was going to join the Navy after uh, college, but college was extremely expensive. And I was like, oh, let's see what we have here on campus. And half the guys in the dorms with me were on the Army ROTC program. And they're like, hey, Cole, just come check it out. I know you don't want to do the Army, but hey, just see what it's all about. So I was like, okay. Uh, met with the uh, on-campus uh, cadre for the ROTC program, and they point blank said, if you want the most guaranteed way to uh, fly for the military, you got to fly for the Army National Guard. And uh, it'll be primarily helicopters. And I was like, that sounds awesome. I would love to fly a helicopter. And um, so did uh, listed in the Wisconsin Army National Guard uh, my second semester of my freshman year. Uh, went to basic training between my freshman and sophomore years of college and then came back and got my ROTC scholarship. And then shortly after that, I met Chris at the unit back in 2014, um, was a cadet. So I was drilling with the unit as well as doing college and ROTC for about three years, and then uh, Chris and the unit went off to deployment. I, a month after college, went to Army Flight School um, and been working for the Army ever since, uh, full-time capacity, uh, flying and doing some uh, more management and um, office work. But, yeah, that's really kind of my path in a nutshell. 
tell me a little bit about the 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 you know the mindset that it takes for the military for your unit etc because that it, it seems like that that's probably one of the most important things to knowing that that army aviation is really the right fit for you sure so i would say the biggest thing with uh, military aviation is not necessarily um, yes you have to be uh, proficient and um, capable of flying an aircraft but really what they're looking for especially as you work towards pilot and command and the uh, the air mission commander and those kind of qualifications they're really looking for um, decision making uh, maturity um, kind of level-headedness um, and being able to not only think inside your own cockpit but the battle space around you and what is going on at any given moment and being able to react to that uh, calmly and effectively. Mm -hmm. So you're uh, Jeff, I think. Yeah, Chris, please. Add, I think the best uh, interview question that I got along the way was my commanding officer asked me, um, do I have any speeding tickets or you know, what am I like as a driver? And, uh, I said, I don't have any speeding tickets. Okay, I have a parking ticket. And he goes, you know, that's a, a, an indicator of, of my trust in you because if I can, if you can demonstrate to society that you fall within the rules that you're required to, that demonstrates to me that the rules I place on you, I can give you this $20 million aircraft. I don't have to worry about you going out and breaking rules. So um, it's that kind of mindset that, um, that to kind of correlate it to the, you know, the John Q public is that, um, you know, there's there's lines that we have to stay within. Um, and there's a dynamic environment, but, uh, you know, it's not, uh, what's the, the 50s actor? Um, uh, I'm trying to think of the name, but uh, uh, Rebel Without a Cause, the, the actor for that. James Dean. You, you can't be a rebel without a cause. That's it. Yep. James Dean. We don't have any James Deans. Nope. No cowboys. So what what was it like, Chris, for you transitioning uh, from flying uh, commercially in your experience with that where you were at the moment to to going into an, uh, a military environment and make and changing your career towards that? Um, it's really hard to really articulate. Uh, so the airlines are very very regimented SOPs, flows and callouts. Um, in Army Aviation, we have a checklist that we must do, um, but how we come about getting to the checklist in the airliner cockpit is a little bit different than how we get to it in the, in the Blackhawk. Both have to be completed and done, it's just how we get to that is, is different. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the preparation uh, is probably three to one, uh, military to civilian. Uh, at civilian, I show up, there's a stack of paperwork, I check it over and we're good to go. And it takes about 45 minutes to look at that by the time you, you know, ready to be airborne. We're in the army, it's probably about, you know, like three times that amount. So hour and a half, two hours, we go through just a plethora of stuff that otherwise a dispatcher would, uh, would handle for us. But on top of that, we have to be able to uh, dynamically update within the flight. So we also have to know army regulations, uh, FAA regulations, and then uh, some sort of uh, like subsequent uh, regulations for your our state. Um, mm. Just a, a litany of stuff that we have to know and be uh, proficient uh, with them. 
So it's, it's a little bit of a mindset difference. Um, it does take me one or two extra thought processes in order to go, okay, I'm not in the airliner anymore. I'm in Blackhawk. Uh, I need to punch this button to do this. Um, or weather minimums. Um, Army Aviation has different weather requirements than the FAA, um, like civilian type pilots. Um, so I have to think, okay, am I able to conduct this mission? Um, yes or no. Whereas civilian mindset, maybe no. Army Aviation, maybe yes. And then there's risk associated with that. So um, it's it's a different mindset, but it requires uh, some, some thoughts, an extra thought here and there. Tell me a little bit about the training. Um, you already had experience, of course, with fixed wing, and you understood that side of it. Uh, like, what about like what helicopter do you start in, uh, Chris? What was your first first helicopter with your training? I I started a number of years ago, and we had the TH67 Creek. That is the military designator for the Bell 206. Uh, I think it's B2 Jet Ranger. Um, I think that's. I started guy. from. I started. Yep, I might have, uh, may or may not have flown that exact one. <laughs> uh, I was on the exact level playing field as every one of my other classmates. And a lot of my classmates didn't necessarily have the experience that I did, but that didn't matter. Um, we were all uh, competing with each other academically and through performance. And there was a lot of really good, good folks in my class that did really, really well. Um, some of them picked up a, you know, how to hover uh, before I did, so I thought, yeah, here I am, a fixed wing pilot, I got this, but no, <laughs> I didn't have it right away. I needed to learn it, so um, starting from ground zero, everyone was equal, and uh, we progressed from there. Uh, I think the only advantage I had as a fixed wing pilot is I had uh, an instrument rating and had some time flying instruments, and in a helicopter, it's the same thing, instruments is instruments, uh, so I had some advantages there, but uh, that was about it. Um, I do have to say, during auto rotation, it was the weirdest thing to come down to the uh, the pavement, the landing uh, zone, or the, the runway, if you will, and actually push forward on the side click uh, in order to level out the uh, the aircraft. Uh, it was so counterintuitive as a, as a pilot to want to flare, pull back and flare, but that's not what you want to do in an auto rotation in a, in a 67. That was a, that was a mind bender to get over. I didn't even know that that was that that was what happens that you have to push over at the last minute in an auto rotation in that. that uh, uh, yeah. So what you're doing is, I'll demonstrate with my fancy uh, model here. So as we come down, we're going to high angle attack, and we actually have to push forward to kind of level off the the helicopter in order for it to settle down at a near vertical. So you're you're pulling back to uh, decelerate, and then you pull uh, the collective and push forward on the cyclic to level it out. Otherwise, you're going to hit with the tail skid first, and that's a that's a bad day. Um, so it's kind of there's multiple inputs you have to do, but one of them is pushing forward on the cyclic, and it's it's different. Cole, tell me about about your uh, training and what helicopter did you train in before you got to the Black Hawk? Yeah, absolutely. I I flew the UH-72 Lakota, um, the Alpha model of that. Uh, yep, that's that's the one. Um, the civilian equivalent is either the BK-117, I think the Charlie II, or it's the Eurocopter 145, essentially. Um, when I went through flight school, half of flight school was still flying the, the TH-67, and then the other half was flying the UH-72. Um, since I have graduated back in 2018, they've actually completely phased out the TH-67, so that is 
the primary trainer for the army today. Wow. So that's what everybody uses. I think that that's, it's, it's interesting because from a civilian perspective, those are, those are big helicopters. Those are, we're not talking Robinsons. They're obviously already turbine helicopters. And I'd, were you already dealing in that very beginning with fairly sophisticated avionics? Uh, for me, it was all glass cockpit. Um, I couldn't tell you. I think it, it might have been Rockwell Collins. I'm not sure off the top of my head what the avionics package was. But, yeah, absolutely. Uh, fully glass uh, integrated multi-engine, which I think the TH-67 is only a single engine, right, Chris? Yes. So they added that complexity to a brand-new flight school student trying to learn how to find the metaphorical hover button. And uh, now you have to do a multi-engine. And um, for me, though, uh, I flew G1000 glass uh, Cessnas in college, so glass cockpits were pretty familiar to me. Um, steam gauge to this day still are not familiar. I think I've had maybe 10 hours in an aircraft total with steam gauge. The rest of my time has all been glass cockpits. So that part was an easy transition, and uh, like Chris was saying, I had my instrument rating in the plane, so it helped with the instrument, but everybody's on the same playing field with flying a helicopter versus what a plane is like. So. Yeah, it's 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 interesting uh, though that that you know you're starting with aircraft that are already at that kind of at, at that level. Tell me, do you remember the first time that you got in the Black Hawk in 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 the right seat? Which, of course, in a helicopter, for those of you that may not fly helicopters, is actually the pilot seat. Yeah. Yeah, um, the harness, it's a five-point harness. And I remember clicking it in for the first time and go, this is pretty cool. I like this. <laughs> I, uh, what was I think, it like? Oh, go ahead, sorry. Um, I, I'm trying to think of a poetic way of, of putting it, but uh, at Fort Rocker, they have these simulators that we'd go through. So you'd have the full uh, switches uh, simulator of doing the startup because the startup can be very complicated and so we would practice it dozens if not hundreds of times at our study library so the very first time I I did do it in the actual helicopter to go fly it was almost like it, I was used to it at that point um, but actually starting the aircraft for the first time hearing those engines those uh, I think the T700s on the Alpha that I flew uh, or the 701s uh, come to life for the very first time. It's not this little speaker behind you. Um, yeah, there was a smile that lasted for several weeks uh, after that. Tell me about the startup procedure. What, what's what's the process or what makes it that that I would not have thought that that is something that is that you have to train on and that uh, more than a couple buttons. Because um, when we think of jet engines in the civilian world and in the jet world, you think about everything being simpler and just, you know, FADEC or, you know, just look for a certain speed and introduce fuel. You don't think it's a really complex procedure. Well, we have quite a lot of cautions, warnings, and notes associated to almost every uh, button that we, we switch. So if you could imagine um, if we put power onto a hydraulic system that's, that's actuated and should not be actuated, it could cause uh, damage or death to, to somebody about you. Um, keeping in mind with the Blackhawk, we'll generally have crew chiefs that are standing outside uh, underneath the aircraft. Um, 
and so if we actuate a hydraulic switch, um, it, it'll we test our backup system, and if, for example, our tailwheel switch isn't locked, there could be torque on the airframe, and it actually can move the airframe, uh, kind of about if you would think of like a uh, like the tail dragger uh, ground loops. So mm. there's we have to recite, we have to know every note, every caution, and every warning um, as we flip the, the switches. And I mean, I think the first note. You know, this may be dated and some IPs may yell at me at this, but I think the very first note is your seat position. And so knowing your proper seat position, because we can articulate up and down, we can't go forward and back, but we can adjust our rudder pedals or our uh, tail rudder pedals forward and aft. And so the proper seat position uh, is important for our, our visibility well. So that there's a note associated with that. And so we have to know that. And those are all like numbers or settings that you know that every time you climb into one you know exactly what you're doing yes yeah cole what yeah, we uh, have a you, um, uh, cole tell me a little bit about your what you remember uh about that or a little bit what it's like uh for, for sure. someone new to the new to uh the blackhawk so it's funny chris brings up the cockpit trainers because uh, right as I was about to start the the flying portion of the 60 course, Chris was down at, I think you were at the AMSO course, if I remember right. And um, so I was like, Chris, I, I need help with these run-ups because, like, I am in over my head right now, and uh, it's a lot. So I think Chris and I probably spent four or five hours on a Saturday and a Sunday, and he's just – thank God for him just running through stuff with me over and over and over again. And, um, I get into the cockpit for the first day, seatbelt harness thing and everything. And then I mess something up horrifically on the check on the checklist for the startup. I'm like, Oh, Chris would be so disappointed in me right now. But, uh, yeah, that was really my first memory of it. Um, and then just thinking, wow, this is like, yes, you do the cockpit trainers and it's got the full screens and the run-ups, but it's, it's something, wholly different when you spool up those engines for the first time for real and see those rotor blades going. It's a, uh, it's a pretty incredible feeling. Wow. It, do you find the Black Hawk is fairly natural to fly or is it really challenging? And, and I say this coming from a perspective that I I've been, I've been handed the controls of a helicopter a couple times in attempted hover. And I can tell you ne neither time went well. So um, for me to relate to what, what it, what's involved, tell me, tell me what, what it's like to, to be the first time of actually managing that beast. Well, I'll let you go first and I'll, I'll chime in afterwards. So my instructor, uh, his name was Ed Douglas uh, in the Lakota for the first time hovering at least. Um, he would kind of give us the controls and, and segments if you would. So he would be like, okay, uh, you're at a stage field. Uh, I know we talked about it the other day, Jeff, about like there's these stage fields all over Southern Alabama for, for the Army. Um, so we're at a stage field, and we had switched out uh, pilots like the students. And he's like, okay, we're going to hover taxi down this line, and I just want you to handle the pedals. I'll handle the collective and the cyclic, and you're just going to manage the pedals to make sure we're, uh, we're straight. And so we did that for a couple days, and he's like, okay, now I'm going to give you the cyclic only and you're just going to manage the cyclic uh, and then we would work on that and then he's like okay now i'm just going to adjust the collective he kind of did that until mm -hmm. then it was the collective and the cyclic then he's like okay now try all three and by that time 
we had done it so many times in segments um, that it, it kind of just clicked finally. Um, but it is a pretty funny sight watching people try to hover for the very first day while you're waiting for your, your stick buddy to get done flying and they pick you up and everybody's just like wiping out the parade field or the stage field. Just like nobody can hover straight. And, um, but eventually everybody gets it. Um, but Bumblebees. Go ahead. Bumblebees around a hive is the best way I can describe it. Yeah. I would say to answer your question about which one's better or which one feels more natural, probably biasly nowadays, I would say the Blackhawk is a lot more natural to fly, but I've been removed from flying Lakota since early 2018. So back in the day, I would have told you it doesn't matter what airframe it is. It's all so completely new and foreign that they're both hard to fly. Um, I would say the avionics are definitely easier on the Lakota, um, but the I would say the 60 is probably a little more responsive than the Lakota in terms of uh, controls. Yeah, the, the Blackhawk is very smooth on the controls, and it has a lot, large amount to do with the hydraulic system. The TH-67 doesn't have hydraulic assist. Uh, it's kind of uh, bell cranks and pulleys and uh, chewing gum. So <laughs> it's... Uh, it's it's not terribly difficult to fly, um, but with the Blackhawk, there's hydraulic assist in everything. We, we would not be able to fly it with if we lost hydraulics. Um, so with that being said, and I got to thank whoever engineered and designed uh, some of the systems, it, um, they actually counteract each other. So if you pull up on the collective, uh, it increases the blade, increases the torque, and so there's a mechanical mixing unit that will compensate for that collective input and it'll actually give a little bit of nose, uh, a pedal input or, or tail rotor input to, to compensate for that. And it, it there's uh, four different mixing units uh, as you various control inputs. It'll actually counteract it. And it's all based upon a standard weight. So if you're above or below the weight, you're not going to be as uh, efficient with it. But to your point, um, when I jump in the Hawk and I, I take off, um, it's it feels very smooth and natural. It doesn't. It doesn't like shut well it's vibrates like like a vibration like a laundry machine with a cinder block in it but it does feel smooth that <laughs> vibrating so it's it's not um, smooth it, it's, it gets a little fatiguing um yeah it, there's a lot of pictures so people can make sure they see what the aircraft looks like yeah perfect uh, as a matter of fact um i believe there's three um uh, it's called ABCS. It's the aircraft vibration counter system, I think. And it, it basically takes the frequency. It'll detect the frequency and it'll give an opposite frequency in order to, to null or zero it out in order to help dampen uh, the vibrations. And I think there's three. If I said four, I think there's three on board the aircraft uh, to help reduce the uh, the vibrations. Wow. That's uh, that's. That and and the image, it, it seems like a closely guarded secret that you can have a base that has a, a, a bunch of Blackhawks that that aren't hovering well. <laughs> everybody learns learns a little bit about kind of uh, uh, how to do it. Um, I want to uh, I'm going to bring up a picture of the cockpit, and I'd like uh, if you could talk a little bit uh, each of you about this. It's it's remarkably large cockpit with a lot going on there. Um, tell us a little bit about what, what we are yeah. looking at. I'll jump in and, and go through a few things and then Paul can, can fill in some gaps there. 
Uh, so we have four displays uh, that are multifunction. And if you can see each one of the white ticks around the, the, the bezel, if you will, you can select something within that display. So the bottom ticks, there's three on one side, three on the other. You can select uh, any number of essentially six displays. And right there I see on the very left um, the primary flight display and then the engine indication display. And then the, that one looks like a tactical display. And again, on the far right side is going to be uh, the primary flight display as well. So within that primary flight display, if you guys have pretty good eyes, you can see the left one has an arc, uh, mm -hmm. an HSI arc. And the one on the right, it looks like a 360. But what that actually is, it's a hover uh, indicator. So we can put a GPS position um, in space, and then we can move laterally forward and aft, and it'll display on there where we are referenced to that point that we just placed. So on that display, if you see it's off to the left, well, we've drifted to the right. So kind of like a localizer on ILS or a glide, uh, like a path on an, on an RNAV, similar, a uh, little bit of a similar process. Um, within the engine indication systems, um, you have all the parameters for both engines displayed on there. Um, and then you have fuel. And in the bottom, so the number two screen from left to right, on the bottom right-hand corner, you see um, basically caution or advisory messages. Uh, so, for example, if we're running the APU, it'll tell us APU on because it's so loud in the cockpit, we'll never be able to tell the APU is running um, without it giving the advisory from there. Um, and Cole, if you want to talk about the autopilot, the flight director, uh, FEDCP. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we can do everything from uh, GPS to ground-based navigation, um, and we can fully couple up. So if I really want to, I could hit a button on the cyclic, uh, put it at a radar altitude of 10 feet, and I could take all my hands off the controls and all my feet off, and that thing will hover over a GPS point until it runs out of fuel. Um, uh, yeah, the, the flight director is very capable. Um, if you go down, you'll see the two screens kind of in the center console. Those are the flight management systems. Um, they do the exact same thing. Everything is redundant versus the left versus the right. Um, so it really doesn't matter where you sit. Um, usually less experienced pilots will sit in the right seat because that's where you're primarily trained from in flight school. And then your pilots in command will sit in the left seat. But as we get guys back from flight school, um, we'll have them sit in the left seat and then we'll sit in the right seat if we're flying with them just to get them more comfortable with that. Um, but going down, it almost looks like a computer mouse um, underneath the FMS. It's called the multifunction slew controller. And it's literally just that. It's a computer mouse that if we have our moving maps up, usually we have them uh, up on the inboard uh, flight, uh, flight displays. We can actually essentially cursor over to a point that's potentially pre-programmed in we can click some buttons and it'll, we can click direct to and it'll engage the autopilot and it'll fly us right to there without us having to touch anything, um, anything else. And that's really how we, in terms of moving map, that's how we really action stuff on the flight displays. Um, with that engine indication page, there's a button actually called IV HUMS, which stands for Integrated Vehicle Health Maintenance System. And that's where we do all of our, uh, indica our health indication tests for the engines. Uh, if we've exceeded any uh, limits, oil pressures, or any abnormal readings, those will kind of pop up on there. Uh, when we're doing maintenance test flights, 
Uh, they'll do rotor track and balance on there, max power checks for the engine. It's uh, pretty much everything the maintenance test pilots need to do. They can access from that inside the, um, the helicopter compared to the Alphas and the Lima models where they had all the uh, numbers and parameters and they had to go back after the flight and download the data and then do it on a computer. You can kind of do 95% of it inside the cockpit during the flight. Um, below those function slew controllers, uh, a litany of different radios. The radios will change over the years. Uh, in our aircraft, we have one that can respond to um, our state uh, law enforcement as well as first responders. Um, and then we have uh, a ton of different radios. It just depends on what the configuration is at the time of how many radios you have. Uh, but usually we can do uh, Fox mic, we can do UHF, VHF, um, SATCOM, uh, a lot of different types of radios. So it's a pretty capable platform, gives us a lot of um, situational awareness. Uh, it's it's pretty great to have all those things at, at your fingertips, literally, to, yeah. to do what you need to do. Our, it could be uh, task, task overload as well. Um, we can run with six different radios, and if you could imagine... Chicago hair, ground frequency, Atlanta approach, tower frequency at the same time. And we as uh, aviators are, are listening to, in our reference, the ground tactical commander. We're listening to the uh, combined arms network um, and the, uh, the aviation battle net. So we have to listen up to very specific things and it can be extremely overwhelming because we have such a capability um, with the amount of radios that we have to manage. Wow. Tell me a little bit about its its kind of its capabilities in terms of uh, you know night flying, instrument flying, terrain following. Um, what you know what what does it have? It's a, what can it do? Well, I'll talk a little bit about that. So on the instrument side of it, we can do GPS, and then as Cole said, we can do ground based navigation. So we can use uh, TACANs, uh, VORs, VMEs. And believe it or not, there's this thing called an ADF and an NDB. We can even do those. <laughs> um, Maybe shot that approach so twice. In, uh, in the combat theater of operations, we're, we're not going to be flying instrument conditions because we want to stay away from the enemy looking at us. And so we don't, everything we do is going to be uh, pre-planned. Um, the, it's about a, I would say, almost 10 to 1. 10 planning hours to one hour flying um, pre-mission that we need to do. And I think Cole will talk a little bit about that. But um, it doesn't have, um, it, everything is passive, if you will. So Cole talked about a radar altimeter. Well, we can't program um, a flight going 60 knots down a valley as it undulates because we need to fly that and react to that. It, it's just not quite capable to do it uh, completely in the dark. So thankfully, uh, it's not completely autonomous yet. Um, maybe a few more years, but we still have a job, at least till I retire. So, well, you might have uh, might have to switch up here in a bit. Yeah. So, it, uh, as far as we've certainly heard things about kind of like, ter you know, low terrain following, use night vision goggles when you do it. Yes. Yeah. So, anytime the sun sets, uh, we're going to goggle up uh, and it just, it, it magnifies the ambient light. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, in some cases and in instances, it'll turn night into day. Uh, in other instances, it'll turn night into twilight. Um, and so talking a little bit earlier about the difference between civilian and military flying, we have to consider uh, the risk uh, of the mission in front of us. Um, 
we have to do our best to identify risk and try to mitigate that risk while also accepting the commander's intent for whatever mission that he's assigned us or she's assigned us. Um, but we have tools to help mitigate that. And goggles is a, is a huge one. It allows us to see um, basically in the shadows, if you will, whereas uh, just our naked uh, eyesight, we wouldn't be able to see quite a number of things. Mm -hmm. um, so that requires currency and even better yet, proficiency. Um, I haven't flown night vision goggles in a little while, and I would tell you I would not not feel comfortable jumping in an aircraft and going uh, low-level flying in the treetops at night under goggles without a little bit more practice under my belt. Yeah, so, you know, speaking of of risk mitigation, the Blackhawk itself is known to so many so many people, largely because, uh, of course, uh, of the real. That happened in Mogadishu and Black Hawk Down, the book, the movie. Tell me a little bit about your kind of ex experience with what happened with that and what you've seen evolve and change since then with with those types of tactics. Sure, I'll, I'll jump in and say a few things, and Cole, you can probably help fill in the gaps as well. Um, so every theater of operations is going to be different. Um, in Black Hawk Down, it is a great, great movie, um, not just for the cinematic appearances of it, but actually when people ask what do I do in the Black Hawk, the very first reference I do is Black Hawk Down. I think it was Mark Bowden that wrote the, uh, the book in just a fantastic way that he, he wrote it, and then an even better, well, an equally as good movie as well. I give accolades to both of them. Um, so with that, um, Part of the reason uh, it was shot down is that it, uh, it was stationary in a very hostile area. And I'm not giving um, any uh, uh, after action review comments to the pilots at the time because they did a fantastic job uh, given their, their scenario. But as something that we do as Army aviators and even as aviators is we look at incidents and accidents and we, we see, we try to identify what went on and try to avoid it for future operations. So one of the issues there at the uh, the Picard Market was they were somewhat stationary uh, in their their orbit uh, to support their troops on the ground, and they were they were doing that for a reason. Um, what we will do as a lessons learned for that, and this may be uh, not a cookie cutter solution to everything, but we try to stay moving. So for those of your viewers that have ever uh, hunted uh, ducks uh, when they're trying to fly, uh, it's a lot harder. Uh, than it is to shoot a stationary paper target. So with that, it's a lot harder to shoot a, a moving target. So we'll keep that in mind. Um, and what are the prolific weapons uh, or proliferated weapons in the battle space? Um, are they small arms? Uh, if they are, well, there's a, a limitation that they have with their trajectory of their, their bullets. And so we will try to stay out of that trajectory um, and then uh, plan our, our missions accordingly for that. So. Um, Great reference, very, very good reference. Cole, any comments on it? Yeah, I just, I think the, the biggest lesson learned probably from uh, from that, and I know we've we've looked at that multiple times at at the unit, is really the, the methodical thought process of mission planning and, you know, where you're at in time and space in the battlefield. Like, I would say that's probably looked at in, um, analyzed a lot more during the mission planning process and without, you know, being there. Uh, I mean, there's a ton of things that could have happened uh, that probably weren't covered in the book or the movie, but 
that's Chris really hit it on the head is it's really just understanding what the threats are and how to mitigate the risk as much as possible while still completing that, that commander's intent. Yeah. I want to add in Jeff um, before the next question, I really want to add in um, our, our mantra of fused mission planning. And it's a nice buzzword that we have, and it, we don't live on an island as Army aviators. We have a, a plethora of support around us in order to facilitate our missions. Um, a big part of that is the intelligence analysis of the battle space. Um, so we'll lean on our intelligence people, uh, not just in the Army, but say the Air Force or the Marine Corps. Um, we will, the, the Air Force weather uh, as well. And so there's a whole litany of other people that help us plan our missions uh, in order for us to be as successful as possible. Help people uh, understand what those missions actually actually are. The Black Hawk itself, obviously, is a large aircraft with large transport capability. Is it also a attack? Is it rescue? What what are the missions that you generally train for? Cool, I'll let you jump in. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so in the Army, the the first letter of the designator for each helicopter really kind of describes its mission set. So, uh, for example, the U and UH-60 is for utility, the C and CH-47 is cargo, and for the Apache is the AH-64 for attack, right? So utility is just that. Uh, you'll also hear sometimes an HH-60, which is a purely medevac platform. Um, there's actually no gunner windows on those, and it's got um, a whole uh, med suite with uh, oxygen and uh, medical carousel for litters and that kind of stuff. So, but really that's troop movement, uh, equipment movement and medevac are truly the primary missions of, um, of the UH-60. Yeah. We're like a, uh, like a, uh, three quarter ton pickup, whatever you can throw in the back of it, we'll, we'll get, we'll get there. We're a four by four. So we'll get a little mud on our tires, We're not afraid to get dirty. Um, and, it's a crew cab, so the executive people can stay inside nice and warm and, and not get mud on their uh, their their boots. <laughs> but we uh, we can do quite a lot of it. I want to show some some images to everybody uh, uh, about the demonstration that you actually did at Air Venture 2023 this year in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. It was truly remarkable, and and just show a couple things here. Um, it t take us through. Tell us a little bit about what that demonstration was, and I'll tab through a few of these. Sure. So sure. I'll. Oh, go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. <laughs> so uh, really, it was to demonstrate the not only the air assault capability, a lot of that fuse mission planning that Chris was talking about of uh, integrating the infantry, uh, the artillery as well as the Air Force with their uh, with the F-35, as well as the KC-135, and how all that kind of uh, melds into a into an operation. So we demonstrated uh, an air assault capability where we dropped off infantry troops uh, to do a movement to contact, as well as we dropped off artillery troops uh, to simulate uh, an artillery uh, pre-fires, as well as um, supporting the movement to contact for the infantry folks. And on top of that, the F-35s um, were there to provide, you know, uh, close air support. And then the KC-135 kind of demonstrated the ability for uh, 
the United States Air Force to extend their range on station to support whatever ground troops. Because at the end of the day, aviation is to support the ground combat troops. We're not we're not the main effort. We never will be the main effort. It's always about the ground troops. So anything that makes their lives easier is that's what we're there for. And then the other big piece was demonstrating medevac. They did a uh, sked hoist as well as they did a, a live lift where uh, they had both the two medevac helicopters. Um, hoisted down a person and then they one of them picked up a sked and then that picture you see there uh, they demonstrated uh, dropping down a person attending to a, a wounded person and then picking back up or dropping off medical supplies or whatever they needed um, that was really it in in totality um, I think there was probably 20 or probably 30 to 40 infantry soldiers and about 20 artillery soldiers we supported that day and um, with two f-35s and the kc-135 and there were six total aircraft between the medevac and the assault that were part of. It, it really yeah, wasn't eight. A, it was eight. I'm sorry. You know, yeah, we of, dropped off uh, sorry, the okay. artillery guys, uh, two artillery birds and four assault birds, and then the two medevac birds behind it. And I'll, I'll tell you, one of the things that I was thrilled that you shared with me, and we're going to share it with our, with our audience right now, is how incredibly and precisely orchestrated the demonstration was. It was to the second. And you really can't read this too well, but this is that, that sheet. Tell us a little bit about this, because when you showed us, the boys and I, your, your sheet for what, what happens when, and the fact it was like, at like, this time and the and three seconds this happens this time in seven seconds that happens 33 seconds that happens it, it was really amazing yeah absolutely so this was part of my uh, my air mission commander training um, so there's the pilot command where you're in control of your own aircraft and then there's the air command air mission commander qualification which is you can be in charge of a flight of aircraft uh, so this was part of my the training regimen for that um, part of that was developing this execution checklist to the second. And it's not only just coordinating, it's, it's planning uh, distances, speeds, what's the winds going to be like, uh, what happens if there's a delay in the air show where it doesn't start on time, which actually did happen uh, that day where we had to essentially go and hand jam numbers and redo all the math down to the second of, all right, now I want you to cross over the runway at, I don't remember what time it was specifically, but now this is the time you need to. I think it was two and two or three minutes off. So sitting there and changing numbers as they're flying inbound. Um, and it's coordinating the F-35s and the KC-135s to make sure they're flying over at the correct time um, and making sure that there's practices with the infantry of, hey, how quickly can you uh, unload off the aircraft? How quickly can the artillery guys get off the aircraft? Where do we have to land these guys to make the choreography? Uh, look proper. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot of distance, a lot of timing, a lot of airspeed management, and you can only control so much on the ground uh, orchestrating it. Um, it's really, I give props to the guys who actually flew it, um, of having to do all that math while in flight and having to land and having to figure out, okay, yes, I'm, I'm behind time, I'm ahead of time. Um, and then to the right, which isn't in the picture, there's, because you don't want to talk about like, I don't want to say, 
uh, assault wheels up the PZS, but I don't want to say that over the radio, so we'll use brevity words like a single word, and they have reference to that checklist, and you'll say that word, and then everybody knows what is going on, what is happening at that certain time, because we, so the whole planning process, and Chris kind of hit it on the head earlier about like the 10 to 1 ratio, so the planning process is a 96-hour planning process for that flight was in totality about 20, 25 minutes, so 96 hours for 25 minutes worth of flight. It's a it's an intense amount of uh, planning ahead of time for it. Is this reflective yeah, the, of how missions are flown? Is this reflective of how you know it works in the real world as well? It's pretty. Yeah, so the, I would say the only um, difference is a lot of times if it's a if it's an actual operation, it's more event driven, not down to the specific second or time. And it's really conditions based on, okay, this now happened, now this triggers this response, uh, and so on and so forth. And then that response then, uh, now this other piece of the puzzle has to move. So I would say more in a, like the initial time on target absolutely is time-based, but I would say after that, I mean, what's Mike Tyson say? You can have a great plan until you get punched in the face. Like it's the same thing. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it goes out the window as soon as it starts. So, um, but yeah, yeah. Referencing wow. back to Black Hawk Down, um, they had intelligence that the, uh, the the I can't remember his proper title uh, minister was in the market, and they knew he was going to be at the market at thirteen hundred, and uh, they knew they needed to be at that market at thirteen hundred, whatever the time was. So they'll, we back plan it for that. And as Cole said, um, from then on out, it becomes event driven. Um, we try to anticipate what those events will be, but Mike Tyson always has a, a say in these fights. So um, yeah. that shifts for sure. How does that coordination shift? So you go and you program your avionics for it. You plan the mission, you program your avionics for it, and then something's got to adapt very quickly uh, let's for for any number of reasons even let's say theoretically you've got to go somewhere completely different for for evac um how does that information get to you how does it get into your avionics how do you do something like that so a lot of it is well, that's one of the we listen to of um you as part of that 96 hour planning process it's okay, what if this happens? And it's kind of playing the what if game until you've answered like any possible way something could go wrong. And you're like, well, I have a response for that. And that's part of the planning process. Um, at the end of the day, though, if, you know, there's uh, a communications plan, if some radios don't work for some reason, that's why we have like six different radios at any different time, you switch to a different frequency or a different uh, band of radio, right? Um, or, at the end of the day, that's part of the air mission commander training is whoever is the air mission commander for that flight is going to make those decisions in real time. Because if I'll say I'm the ground force commander, I only have so much visibility, but the guys who are actually flying it, they're going to be able to make the, the best judgment calls of what needs to happen to meet that uh, ground force commander's intent. Mm -hmm. Do, does the, does the, the actual data and, and programming come directly into your avionics or do you have to do it manually it depends if you can like you can plan alternate routes and have them pre-built um but if it's like hey throw this whole plan out the window and we're calling an audible then a lot of times it's going to be uh whoever's the flight lead is hand jamming points into the gps and flying it and then giving times and 
communicating that back to, through the flight for everybody to put the same points in and be on the same page. Okay, so it's not like some automatic system where AWACS or something else sends and updates your avionics for you and no. there's some new thing you've got to do. Mm -hmm. What's what's your experience? We have a, uh, Go ahead. Real quick, we have a, a system that's basically a text message and that's probably the, the coolest thing we have is they can send uh, new coordinates and waypoints via that, that way. And then mm -hmm. we can, like Cole said, we actually manually have to enter them in. So we can't just pull it and then place it in the FMS. But Got not it. nearly as cool as some of the airline stuff. <laughs> and what defensive capabilities do you have? You you have guns, uh, gunners on the side. Is there anything else? Uh, yeah, I'll talk to this a little bit. Um, so we have the we have some sensors on board the aircraft that can detect uh, different types of uh, infrared radiation. And so if someone's trying to shoot a missile at us, we can be able to detect that. And we have a system on board that'll identify, hey, there's a missile coming at you. And part of our tactics, training, and procedures will be to react to that. Um, so we have uh, flares and we have chaff aboard to uh, to decoy um, and uh, try to hide from from those, those systems. Uh, and uh, the best defense that we have is planning mm -hmm. and just not go to those areas that guys have them one of the the last things i want to make sure that we get to that that's so impressive is the ability to deploy these aircraft around the world and um and this is uh, tell me a little bit about how this aircraft oh, is designed to be packaged Well, that guy there, uh, so we have four main rotor blades and they they articulate against the rotor hub. And so we have some pins that we can remove and fold them backward. You can see four red uh, like pogo sticks that are holding each rotor blade on there. And what you can't see very well is we have four different color codes on those blades to know where those little pogo sticks go. So blue one will align with the blue and the, the red with the red, yellow, yellow, and so on and so forth. So um, it's a pretty neat little plan. And then you you shove them up the back of that, looks like a C-17. Um, and we can carry a couple of them in a C-17 and deploy to wherever their C-17 can, can land and we'll offload and put them back together. It's uh, it's pretty pretty amazing and, it, and even the, the stable is it the stabilator that fall folds and I mean the idea that you can fly whether it's a C seventeen or I think isn't it like five or six and a C five like and yep. get them around the world is is impressive for an aircraft that I will say when I have seen it in person it's it's crazy big. <laughs> it's a little bigger than a Robbie twenty two, that's for sure. <laughs> Put a couple of Robbies in it. Um <laughs> One experience that I'll I'll share because I wanted to get your reaction to it that was surreal for me as a civilian. Many years ago, I was having an aircraft painted down in Floral, Alabama, which is near what used to be called Fort Brucker. And as we were in this large hangar, all of a sudden, we, the um, the guy, who, the gentleman who uh, uh, Whitney owned the um, paint facility down there, heard something on the radio, and then all of a sudden started closing the hangar doors. And I was like, "What's going on?" And I go and I look and all of a sudden you heard that noise, that incredible like wop wop sound of these 
and an entire formation of Blackhawks came in, in formation. And then that was amazingly cool. The surreal part was when they all landed, pulled out a credit card, handed it to the guy to get fuel, and went in and get lunch all together, which all of a sudden was a way too normal for for this incredible scene out of a movie of all these aircraft, these amazing Blackhawks landing. Um, if someone told me that story, I wouldn't necessarily believe it as being real, but uh, I was there. Tell me the reality. You guys get to fly yeah, that's, places that's exactly and pull out a credit card and have lunch? Yeah, we've done that once or twice. Yeah. <laughs> so it, I sell it to John Q. Public, thank you for paying your taxes because you're paying our fuel bill. Um, yeah. But it builds upon that foundation. So going back to the the Air Venture show that we talked about, um, so we have multiple aircraft. We have essentially six or eight aircraft flying in close formation. Uh, that takes a lot of practice. You can't just jump in a helicopter and go out and do that. So before we do it on a real live mission in combat theater or in front of the uh, the hundreds of thousands of spectators at Air Venture, we need to be able to practice that. And so that kind of incorporates down there in flight school to go down to Flora, Florala. It just so happens they put on a really good spread as well at the FBO. So that helps entice us to go there. Um, but it builds that foundational uh, knowledge and experience that we, we need in order to, uh, to become better aviators. Absolutely. Well, listen, I just want to thank both of you so, so much for your service, uh, for also doing the air show for all of us to get to see that at Air Venture. Um, for flying this, I'll show it one last time, for flying this this amazing aircraft, this, this time with external fuel tanks attached, um, and helping to protect our nation. And, and so thank you for that. Thank you for coming on Social Flight Live. And uh, I hope uh, we'll get to see you do another demo at next year's Air Venture. Thanks for having us, Jeff. Appreciate your yeah. time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks, guys, and have a wonderful evening. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here again on Social Flight Live. We'll be back next week, next Tuesday, October 3rd at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with A-10 Thunderbolt 2 pilot, K.C. Campbell. She uh, is the pilot that had an amazing uh, uh, survivable experience where uh, her A-10 was uh, really shot up in a way that, that no one thought would make it back to the base over in Iraq, and yet uh, she managed to survive and bring that aircraft home. Her story is wonderful. She has a new book out, and I can't wait for her to share all of this with you. That's next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, as always, here on Social Flight Live. Then on Tuesday, October 10th at 8 p.m., the amazing and legendary Bert Rutan, will be with us to talk about the history of his designs and accomplishments. And with that, I would just like to thank all of you again for joining us here on the show and wish you all blue skies. <laughs>